house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. What are you offering? Wealth, travel, fame. I can take you to movies that have all that. You're cute. The whole show is in shambles. He is an arrogant... I am someone else! And every single one of you stands here as an adjunct to my vision. You don't like the way I work here? There's the door. There is water breaching the deck. Sabotage! This is the essential Orson Welles moment. We might have a show that closes Thursday night. We might have a show that people will remember for 50 years. Orson wants to stay with me tonight. Want me to fight for you? Because I will. You've only known me for a week. Well, sometimes you remember a week for the rest of your life. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast endorsed by the pantsless man outside of Alice Tully Hall. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with a young female writer who I only ever seem to see in the library, uh, Joe Reed. <laughs> or a museum, where I'm... Uh, or a museum, but like... Weirdly places... fetishizing a Grecian urn. <laughs> Yeah, like you only exist in like uh, state-funded uh, buildings. Wait, do you it's feel the only like place I can find you? Do you think like Zoe Kazan is like a ghost of the WPA or something like that? Like, right, right. Like she, she's a ghost um, of the like daughter of the founder of PBS or something. <laughs> and only Zac Efron can see her, and so yes. the end of this movie becomes a lot more supernatural. She is the anthropomorphized public uh, broadcast system. Her character in this movie, um, I don't know. I feel like I became aware of that trope in a film of like the blonde and the brunette, like the like classic, like I guess like 1, Betty and Veronica percent. kind of a thing, right? Where mm-hmm. like so a, a male protagonist is uh, choosing between two women, and one is blonde and one is brunette, and the blonde is always sort of this like idealized perfect out of his league a little bit and whatever and the brunette is like attainable nice a good friend (laughs) like all of that and i feel like for whatever reason the my touchstone to that from early childhood has always weirdly been dick tracy (laughs) because in dick tracy (laughs) it's madonna uh, breathless mahoney whatever blonde and dangerous and unattainable and whatever and then he's got like Glenn Headley at home, just like if all else fails, he can still, you know, rely on Glenn Headley. And this movie weirdly reminded me of that, where it's just like Claire Danes is luminous and beautiful and everything that, you know, he wants in the world and everything like that. And then it's just like nice girl Zoe Kazan at the museum. And ultimately, you're just like, just go be with Zoe Kazan. Because like... It's a lot. First of all, it's a lot less drama, but also it's just like she's really nice and and sweet and pretty and likes the things that and you like. And to your point, Claire Danes does a really great sooner or later in this. Movie. <laughs> oh my god, do I want to hear that now? 
Like, absolutely. Claire, whatever movie Claire Danes sings sooner or later in will be our eighth Claire Danes film that we cover on this podcast. Because this I mean, I don't baby think that's is number fair. I think seven. She would win an Oscar for that. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Well, we'll make an exception. She finally win. That was my ham handed segue into mentioning that this is our seventh Claire Danes film. Seventh Claire Danes. The only, the only performer we've covered seven times on this podcast we did we make a big deal for six seven is sort of gravy we're not gonna like whatever but like seven's a lot seven's we we are gonna get into it though but like of course she has to be the person to be the first seventh timer because like she has a reputation to uphold in this podcast and we will continue to uphold that claire danes is like the unofficial mascot of this podcast yeah Yes. Because there's there's more. There's still more, guys. Um, oh, there's, yes, there's much, much more to come, for sure. We will not be doing Stage Beauty anytime soon because we will we will need it to keep the stats alive when also, her throne is threatened. Also, me and Orson Welles, a stealth Stage Beauty reunion of uh, Billy Crudup's two romantic uh, opposite poles in that film, which were Ben Chaplin and Claire Danes. Yeah, I thought you were going to say it's a sort of stage beauty reunion because it, this movie has Claire Danes and a stage. <laughs> yes, Claire Danes finally at long last reunited on mm-hmm. film with a stage. Yes. A general stage. This is also our Before... third Zac Efron film after uh, The Paperboy and, of course, The Great Hairspray. We sort of have spaced him out a lot more sanely than we did. We're like, Claire Danes was five of our first 50 episodes. Um, and Definitely it's... the least of the three Zac Efron's that we've had in terms of Zac Efron's performance Agreed. and like screen persona, charisma. Absolutely. Well, you can tell that this is early. Like this, although it's the year after Hairspray, weirdly enough, but yet he fits into that movie so well that that movie knows what to do with him a lot better. I think he's a little bit more adrift in this movie, as we will probably get into. He was still in Hairspray, like, waist deep in the Disney star teen heartthrob And that's uh, what that movie needed out of him. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and this is, like, trying to step... the One of the first, like, stepping out of that, like... Agreed. Yes. And it is also our second Zoe Kazan movie, I want to mention. And our second Zoe Kazan movie, um... Remind me, our previous Zoe Kazan movie, did she maybe portray a ghost that haunted uh, (laughs) public institutions? She played a ghost that haunted uh, Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin's uh, estranged marriage. She was there. Uh, Yes, she was the unchosen Sophie's Choice. (laughs) Yes, the Sophie's Choice who stuck around. Yes. Yeah, yeah, part of uh, Meryl Streep's trio of... Uh, annoying children in uh, the great it's complicated interestingly That's enough right. those kids are so bad who we're going to talk about the 2009 oscars in this uh, podcast for sure who were the hosts of the 2009 oscars uh well steve martin and alec baldwin the stars of it's complicated so truly uh, we bring it all around truly the the chain of zoe kazan on this podcast is what it is complicated <laughs> indeed very complicated. Uh, we should get some business off the table before we get into the episode, though. Yes, do it. We, as of the airing, we have wrapped up our listener's choice, like, 
massive poll of getting all of your votes. Go check out our Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. You should be able to find the poll, if not now, very soon. I do wonder if we're going to have to have a tiebreaker poll, to be honest. I have some ideas and we can talk about that off off, uh, mic. Yeah, we'll talk off mic, but guys, check it out and uh, you'll be able to see the final votes. I have a hunch about what's going to win. You've ultimately. had a strong hunch anyway. since the beginning about what's going to win. I've had, I've had a, str- I've had, a, you know, you know, I, I, I read the tea leaves. I, I, I pull all. <laughs> you are our preeminent soothsayer, uh, Christopher. I am. Yes. I am. Um, catch me under a bridge, uh, like throwing some herbs into a river and um, determining our futures. Yes, um, exactly. But uh, we also now that we are in December. We actually have another thing to stump for you guys. We're doing a, another mailbag. I love a mailbag. Love After a mailbag. After the listener's choice, we're going to do another mailbag for you guys. So send us your questions. We know you've already been sending us your votes for the listener's choice. But now, send us any questions you want us to talk about. Um, when should we set the deadline for this, Joe? Like oh. The 15th? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's do you that. have until December 15th to send us uh, any of your Oscar entertainment movie-related questions. Yes. Uh, and yeah. yeah, anything about... Yeah, anything. Well, let's, I, I'm not, I'm not going to put too many... You know, nothing about... The, nothing too far afield of our uh, mission Yeah, please statement. don't ask us about uh, COVID and movie releases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, don't bum us out, guys. I mean, we don't want to bum you out. We right. don't want to bu- be bummed out. Uh, but yeah, tweet us your uh, mailbag submission questions at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz mm-hmm. on Twitter or email them at hadoscarbuzz at gmail.com. Absolutely. You have until December 15th. Joseph. Yes. Me and Orson Welles. Yeah. You and Orson Welles had a, had a time of it. Or as Goldie 1930s. would call it, me and Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. If this was a movie that I had seen before but didn't remember very much about. I don't know about I you. I can't imagine why. Uh, was this your first time? This with... was my first time watching this movie. I'm kind of fascinated by this and Cradle Will Rock right now as, like, the preeminent Orson Welles on-screen uh, Oscar movies. It did make me want to watch... Coming out. It did make me want to watch um, uh, Cradle Will Rock, which I haven't felt that need to since I first watched Cradle Will Rock back when it and was... And I also haven't seen Cradle Will Rock. Oh, that's interesting. The cast is fantastic. I'm trying to remember yeah. who played Wells... In that. Oh, Angus McFadgen. Sure, sure. Well, and I also left this movie more eager to watch Cradle Roll Rock because I know that that is also more tied into the theater world of Orson Welles. And the best stuff about this movie was everything to do with the Julius Caesar production. Yes. Like, especially when it's the final, uh, like, performance that we get to see on stage. I thought to myself as I was watching that, that, like... This does the thing that we usually tend to say is pretty impossible for movies about movies or uh, TV about TV. I remember that being such a big thing um, with like the 30 Rock Studio 60 sort of thing when they were making TV shows about TV shows, which is that it's hard to make a production within a production that's supposed to be good seem good and not sort of overrated or pompous but like this movie did the not inconsiderable task of making me wish i could watch that production 
of Julius Caesar. Uh-huh. Do you well, know what I mean? Yes, but apparently they like basically recreated it. They had all of the original stage designs, all of the lighting design that they adapted it from. So it's like it's a clo it's like historically a pretty close approximation for this what was really revolutionary on Broadway at the time. Um which to me is like the modern dress, the like pretty um clear uh aggressive cutting of Shakespeare's original text to serve right. Orson Welles's point. Like right. this is it's a foundational um production of the modern theater. It it's um reminiscent of if you ever saw the Ian McKellen Richard the Third, which was Shakespeare mm-hmm. brought into a World War II context, uh, and sort of uh, mm-hmm. anti-fascist kind of a thing like that. This production of Julius Caesar was doing that uh, uh, way back then, and yeah, it really made me wish I could watch it. Well, you mentioning that that they took such pains to sort of like recreate that is for me. That's sort of the Richard Linkletter-iest sort of uh, stamp that's on this movie. I feel like I want to talk mm-hmm. about in a little bit about this era for Richard Linkletter that roughly tracks between Before Sunset in 2004 and Before Midnight in 2013, where he's making probably his – it's probably his longest run of movies that feel very impersonal to him. That feel most mm-hmm. sort of estranged from him as a sort of essential artist. and Or at least the parts of him where he's leaning into his point of view that is on the more mainstream side and the less idiosyncratic side, like School of Rock. Well, uh, well, School of Rock comes just before uh, before Sunset, and that is also, that doesn't necessarily scream Richard Linkletter to you, but it's also... In many ways, his most successful film, and it's so good that I sort of am happy to leave it out. But I'm the run between Before Sunset and Before Midnight, which runs Before Sunset's 04, Before Midnight's 2013. He remakes the Bad News Bears, he adapts Fast Food Nation, he adapts Philip K. Dick's A Scanner Darkly using the rotoscope technology that he did for Waking Life, which does feel like a much more personal. Richard Linklater movie and like using that same technology on a scanner darkly does sort of draw that more into his filmography, but it's still very much like a foreign source material for him. Me and Orson Welles mm-hmm. is a screenplay by two people who are not him based on a, based on a book. And then Bernie's getting close. Uh, Bernie definitely does feel like a Richard Linklater movie. I think Bernie is sort of Linklater getting a little bit back to, where he was. And of course, during this whole stretch is also when he's filming Boyhood, you know, bit by bit, mm-hmm. year by year kind of a thing. So like it's not like he's spending all this time completely divorced from what we think of as his sensibility as he's doing in many cases these kind of work for hire kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But it's an it's well, an between it's an this odd and stretch. Bernie, it feels like I mean, there's other times where he's had that long of a break, but it's a three-year break between this movie debuting and Bernie coming out, and that's a long time for Richard Linklater. Like, even some of his movies that just kind of 
don't make an impact. Like, he makes a lot of movies. Right. That's the thing. He's always working. And mm-hmm. but I think it's telling that at what that starting with Bernie, it's this series of four very much like back to Linkletter stuff where like Bernie brings him back to Texas before midnight is obviously a return to this beloved uh, franchise and this, you know, full circle kind of a moment for him and Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Boyhood is of course this culmination of this years long project that he was working on. And then everybody wants some in 2016 is this spiritual sequel to dazed and confused, which is also a return. So I mean, I'm somebody who sort of enjoys looking at director's filmographies in these kind of like block uh, eras a little bit. And like, so it's this like really kind of impersonal era throughout the aughts pulling into this like return to himself in uh, the 20, in the early 2010s at least. Mm -hmm. And then like, he sort of retreats from that again with last flag flying and where did you go Bernadette, which both seem very much like, him just working on stuff that feels like somebody else's uh, vision, their adaptations and whatnot. And now if we look at stuff that's upcoming, there's another rotoscoped movie coming next year, Apollo 10 and a half, which is about people sort of watching the Apollo moon landing. And it fe- and it seems like if you read the description that it could plausibly be a little sort of, um, introspective waking life monologues kind of a thing i'm not sure if it's exactly going to turn out that way but like that seems like a possibility really into that me too i loved waking life i know that was sort of a divisive movie but i really loved it and then of course the other thing that he's working on at age 60 is embarking a 20 year merrily we roll along project which like i'm dubious but like it's definitely yeah i don't think we're gonna see a finished movie of that in 20 years Right. And also the casting of Blake Jenner has now become really controversial yep. with uh, everything that we have found out about him and his personal life. And so, like, that's a very fraught project. But, like, at least in its conception, that's, again, him returning to something that he had attempted, you know, successfully attempted very, very well with Boyhood. And he's a really interesting director. I know he sort of gets pegged a lot of times as kind of a dude. You know what I mean? Kind of a, he sort of gets the the dazed and confused of it all has come to sort of define him as a persona. Obviously slacker is another one, which he's actually in, mm-hmm. which sort of defines him as this, you know, this sort of nineties slacker persona has stuck with him. But I think he's a really interesting director with a really interesting career. I think he's interesting too. I think people don't, um, give him credit for like some of the i mean you say some of them are impersonal but like the more sentimental movies like bernadette this um the school of rock that actually like can find something interesting about sentimentality that's not maudlin or boring and it's always at least entertaining to watch i know other people feel differently about bernadette i kind um, of liked bernadette i saw it so far after the the kind of critical dialogue about it and mm-hmm. a lot of people just sort of really dismissed it as slight a lot of people who really loved the book kind of you know slammed it for not being as good as what the book was i had never read the book but i watched it a few months ago and i thought it was really engaging i was i was happy with it it's not like yeah. didn't knock my socks off or anything but i thought it was good i agree cool all right Where'd so you yeah, go, Bernadette Fan Club? Members one and two. <laughs> yeah, 
He is hard to pin down, though. Yeah. Like, he has those, like, staple movies, like, the Before series, Dazed and Confused, that, like, get hung on him. But more often than not, his movies are not like that. So he... You're right that it's like we just be... Uh, people just fall back on, oh, well, he's just a dude director, right? Because yeah. he's not so easy to, like, take the breath of his career and say what's definitive about him. Yeah. Dazed and Confused is a really uh, important movie for me in terms of Mm. when I was in high school, when I was sort of still just sort of, like, figuring out what about the movies really fascinated me and what really sort of drew me to them. And Dazed and Confused is released in 1993, so I'm still in junior high at that point. The only thing I remember about it when it got released was that a lot of the, like, cooler boys in my class all loved the soundtrack because it was very sort of, like, classic rock, very, you know, right, of its right, era. Right. And my, my growing up, like, the all the cool kids listened to, like, their dad's classic rock. It was very, it was a very odd and interesting sort of moment, which kind of makes sense because the popular music at the time was very uh, poppy. So, of course, like... You know, the straight boys were going, we're not going to be listening to Janet Jackson and Paula Abdul like I was on the sly. They were going to be listening to <laughs> classic rock. So, like, the Dazed and Confused soundtrack was very popular. And I remember seeing that sort of like the stoned happy face button being like uh, iconography that recurred. But I never saw it, and I didn't really know much about it as a movie until a few years later when I was in high school and it was on like USA Network at you know, midnight or whatever. And I was up late and I was watching it and it's set in 1976. And yet it was absolutely the closest approximation of what my high school life felt like and was like at the time in terms of the way everybody just sort of like would go and hang out. We wouldn't go like driving around, but we definitely like that part the whole end part where they just sort of like go gather at that like clearing in the woods or whatever and put a keg out and just like everybody from all the different little like uh pockets of socialization at the high school would all sort of like end up in the same spot that felt very very close to what my high school experience was and i remember all through high school when i I would watch a bunch of like teen tv shows or teen films and like nothing all those things that were like filmed in california or whatever and were about these really sort of like the heathers sort of social structure that never felt authentic to what my high school experience was but dazed and confused really did and i remember that being like i i on a blank check one time griffin referred to um Tim Burton as like training wheels auteur, like your first auteur. Oh, totally. And mm-hmm. and that was very much what Burton was like for me as well. But Dazed and Confused and Link Letter was like that for me too, because then I was able to connect Dazed and Confused to Before Sunrise to Slacker. I went back and I watched Slacker and I was like, oh, this is this is his thing. This is like this is what an auteur is, even mm-hmm. if I didn't know what the term auteur was at the time, right? So that would probably be. I mean, like definitely Tim Burton for me, but also Von Trier and probably Todd Haynes. Sure, sure, sure. Who I came to both of them a good bit later, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Dazed and Confused. I haven't seen it since I was probably too young for it because, like, 
I didn't get it when I saw it when I was a teenager and I didn't get what the appeal was. You mentioned the stoned happy face icon, which, like, I guess dazed and confused invented the emoji. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, congrats to their advertising team. Yeah. I definitely latched on to the before series. Like, right when Sunset came out, I saw Sunrise right before it, Mm -hmm. because I knew that movie was coming, and fell in love with both of those movies. Lost my mind when Midnight came out. Like, Midnight came out, I think, right after my husband and I got engaged. So I was like, okay, so, like, um, this is uh, part of my marital counseling. Fantastic. Before Sunrise, to me, I'm still so, I have such affection for that first one, especially. I know, you know, different people like different ones the best. And I'm such a nostalgic person that, like, it's no surprise that Before Sunrise is still my favorite. Um, that it's obvious. Well, you know, I've, I've explained my philosophy to you where it's like, you're, if you are a sunrise person, a sunset person, or a midnight person, it explains so much about like your romantic point of view yes. and uh, like your uh, it makes uh, life partner point of view. But then everybody is also either a Celine or a Jesse on top of that. Oh, that see, that's this a really like interesting me point. In astrology, basically, it's like which one of the movies do you identify with, and then are you a Jesse or a Celine? Please, I'm very obviously a Midnight Celine. <laughs> you are very obviously a Sunrise Jesse. I think that makes sense. I think that makes sense. Before Sunrise is the most sort of like heedlessly romantic. I also feel like the fact that I've never really had a long-term relationship makes me a lot more susceptible to the sort of naive romanticism of Before Sunrise, which I do really love. The other thing in more like a cultural context thing is before sunrise was the movie that Ethan Hawke made right after reality bites. And like the two of them in tandem were just thunderous at the time in terms of somebody who was just like, Oh God, like this is the kind of dreamy nineties boy. Right. And the before sunrise version of Ethan Hawke was a lot, uh, easier to sort of swoon over because he wasn't a jerk like Troy Dyer is in uh, in Reality Bites. But yeah, that movie was was a knockout for me at the time. I was explaining this to a friend that like Ethan Hawke is the pinnacle. Ethan Hawke in that era is the pinnacle of hot guys in the 90s with butt hair. Oh yeah. To the point where you don't even think about it as butt hair. No. He's just hot. No, I feel like what I my I feel like my icon for butt hair is is probably your uh, your Ryder Strongs in uh, Boy Meets World kind of a thing or um, oh who else I feel like there are yeah, others but like Ethan Hawke's butt Dawson. hair was so cool and so like sexy that like it took us if people tried to emulate it or like people tried to chase that even if they didn't realize they were chasing Ethan Hawke. To yeah. the point that it took us a good solid decade to be like, oh, this hairstyle looks like a butt. The other thing about... It took like James Vanderbeek. Right. Right. It, yes. Which was a sea change for a lot of things. Yes. To bring it back to me and Orson Welles, though, because talking about Ethan Hawke reminds me of the fact that like Ethan Hawke has showed up in so many Richard Linklater movies. He's clearly the, you know, the actor who's worked with him the most. Me and Orson Welles is the very rare 
uh, Richard Linklater movie. Like, even when I'm talking about when he's making this run of sort of impersonal films with, like, Fast Food Nation and and uh, Bad News Bears, he still tends to work with the same actors a lot. And me and Orson Welles, I can't think of a single person in that I movie. Either. Who was James Tupper in another Linklater movie? Let me look that, that up. Like while... It likely, right? It does, but, like, I don't remember... Uh, Claire Danes showing up in another... I could be missing something, like, very, very obvious. But uh, let me look up right. James Tupper while you talk a little bit about that. Uh, the, his No, sort of you're right, because choices. that struck me, too. Because, like, even if it's just a person here or there that is significant, you will see someone who is a familiar Linklater player. Mm-hmm. Though I guess, like, maybe he's moving more and more away from that. Because, like, Last Flag Flying doesn't have it, I don't think. Uh, Bernadette doesn't. So, like... Maybe he's steering away from it. Although, at least with um, those, James Tupper has never worked with Linklater besides me and Orson Welles. At least with those ones, they're later movies, so you could sort of leave open the possibility that he would, you know, work with them in the future. Because he definitely, like, it's not like he stays with the same sort of four or five people. He keeps opening his circle and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. different people recur but this really had a lot of people I would like to see in another Richard Linklater movie, like someone like Kelly Riley. Yeah, um, I thought Kelly Riley was very like perfect for Richard Linklater movies. Yeah, and Christian Christian McKay is an interesting one because I I know I've seen him in other things, but it's always like, why do I know that person? And then I look at the credits, and it's Christian McKay, and I can't still. Can't like if you ask me to name another Christian McKay movie, I'm just like I I don't know, I don't have it. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm just gonna keep looking up people from this movie and seeing if they've ever worked. <laughs> we again. will find someone. Um, because Christian McKay, no, we can cut out some of this too if it gets a little. Uh, Claire, Vanilla Danes, Flanagan, no. and the others. Eventually, they will find you. Eventually, <laughs> we will find this person. <laughs> um, but it's it's a lot like like Eddie Marsan is an actor who you really associate with you know Mike Lee movies rather than uh, Linklater movies, him. and. Zac Efron was, like, very much his own thing. It's really interesting to see um, this early... We talk We talk a lot about, like, why movies had Oscar buzz and why they didn't, and we'll get into that on the other side of the plot description. But I really do feel like when, you at, when we talk about, like, why didn't this movie succeed, and part of it is that it didn't really have a distributor, and part of it is, you know, other factors, but I think a big part of it was, I think this movie never really got taken super seriously because it was a Zac Efron movie and we were not yet at the place where we were like, oh, now we have to take Zac Efron seriously as an actor. That didn't happen At least in the way it was marketed, they like kind of hung a lot of it on his shoulders. Um, Yeah. 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 The way that we'll definitely get into. I'm finding nobody. uh, Maybe move into the plot description. Yeah. I would just say I'm finding nobody who was in uh, me and Orson (laughs) Welles, who was in other Richard Linklater movies, which, again, makes it very rare for his filmography because he really does like working with uh, a lot of the same people. So more evidence to the fact that that is significant that you will recognize from another one of his movies. Yeah, exactly. All right. Anyway, so we are here to talk about Me and Orson Welles, directed by Richard Linklater, written by Holly Gent and Vincent Palmo Jr., adapted from Robert Kaplow's novel based on the the revolutionary staging of Julius Caesar, 
by one Orson Welles of the titer, the titular Orson Welles. Movie stars Zac Efron, Christian McKay, Claire Danes, Kelly Riley, Eddie Marzan, Zoe Kazan, James Tupper, and Ben Chaplin. Movie premiered in TIFF in 2008, did not see theaters until November 25th of 2009. Yeah, that was another, that's another killer, is the, not only the wait, but the fact that, like, it didn't get picked up at the film festivals that uh right. we'll definitely it went to multiple about. festivals without a distributor which i do think is surprising yes that had to be like one of those situations where it was like searchlight was all set yeah or like sony classics was all set because it would totally make sense for like one of them to distribute the movie or there was some type of like contract negotiation like if you pick this movie up you have to push it for oscar which right. like is a thing and nobody was prepared to do it that year whereas like if this was a spring movie it would probably have made some money yeah instead. my feeling is if there were streaming platforms back then it would have ended up on one of them like definitely yeah maybe yeah Anyway, yes. Joseph, are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of me and Orson Welles? Sure. We'll see how much uh, right. um, how I end up running out of time, but we'll see. All right. So your 60-second plot description of you and Orson Welles starts now. It's 1937, and Zac Efron is a high schooler in New York City who has a chance meeting with a young Orson Welles outside the soon-to-be-open Mercury Theater, as Welles' repertory company is preparing to open their production of Julius Caesar. Welles, being the eccentric and autocratic artist we all know him to be, hires Efron on the spot to play the role of Lucius, and so begins Efron's foray into the world of live theater and the life of one of the great artists of the 20th century. Welles is, of course, an egomaniac and terrorizes most of the people he works with. Among others, Eddie Marsan is John Hausman, Welles' business partner, and James Menentree's Tupper is Joseph Cotton, while Efron falls in seconds. Gaga Love with the office manager played by Claire Danes at peak luminescence. Efron accidentally sends the sprinkler systems off, and he and Claire Danes ends up sleeping together, and then she sleeps with Wells, and then Efron gets pissed and tells Wells where he can shove it, and ultimately Wells has a moment of humility and begs Efron to return for opening night. After a very successful opening performance of Mercury's anti-fascist interpretation of Caesar, Ten Efron seconds. finds out that Wells was just bullshitting him and he's fired after all, and Claire Danes is now dating David O. Selznick for career advancement, and so he goes back to school and quote-unquote settles for the perfectly lovely young Jewish girl he probably should have been with all along in the end. Done. Orson Welles said Antifa, baby. He did. He sure did. Yeah, that was, uh, again, it really made me want to uh, watch that production. I thought it was really well done. I thought it's it was, the movie does the cool trick of making the production of it feel buffoonish enough that you're just like, what are these guys do? These jokers. Mm-hmm. Like this, this scene that keeps getting cut, the um I cannot I can't remember now the character that the guy plays, but the poet. The the scene where the, scene poet, the poet. Yes. Which um, is like one of the the scene where he's killed is like one of the like landmark moments of that staging too, where like you see it in the movie where they like talk about the audience like gasping, gasping. with yeah. like the unexpected like not only change to the script because in the original Julius Caesar, it's a mob that kills him. Right. But in well staging, it's like a police force that kills uh, this poet who's speaking out uh, about what happened, the corruption. Um, but the but, staging like, it of it, the way got, like a three minute standing ovation. Oh, wow. In opening night. Yeah. The staging of it where the police just sort of creep up uh, from the back of the stage, I thought was really effective. But again, the movie and again, part of it is, 
my my essential unfamiliarity with most of Shakespeare probably contributed to that in the way where it's just like I don't really know Julius Caesar as a play. So like I know, you know, Et tu Brute and I know the Ides of March and and that's basically it. Um in fact there was another line in this um that uh, it was a familiar it's, you know those things where like you re- you hear a line in a shakespeare thing and you're just like that's why that line has become like uh so popular and people say that as a cliche there was one in this and i can't remember what it was but anyway mm-hmm. um uh oh it's it's the one from the joni mitchell song um that she quotes in the joni mitchell song was uh, uh i am as constant as the northern star as the northern that star one. yes anyway constantly in the darkness Where's that? Exactly. That's from A Case of You, which is one of my favorite Joni Mitchell songs. Um, anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love to just vibe and oh, have a glass of wine. Oh, uh, I should. Scarface on repeat, that song. Um, anyway. What I do think this movie does really well is show how much of an impact and how innovative Wells's staging was at the time. Because, like, these type of ideas of like recontextualizing classic works to um, reflect modern concerns or like completely uh, strip it of the uh, like type of staging context that we see. Like this is obviously a play about uh, ancient Rome, right? And then he contextualizes it about what was going on with fascism in Europe at the time. And like, we see that all the time in theater now, but like, this movie does put you in a really good position to understand how innovative Wells was and how that was something we hadn't really seen and the impact yeah. that it's had since to the point now where we have Evo Van Hova doing a yeah. bunch of dumb shit like screens. There must be screens everywhere. Must screens. Be screens. Yeah. Must be screens. Must be part filmed. Whatever. Oh boy, I saw I saw the Eva Van Hove uh, network, and that was a test of my patience. <laughs> you couldn't have gotten me to watch that with Brian Cranston, noted one of my nemesis. Oh, I didn't. Th- I didn't even think Cranston was a problem in that, but just the the staging of it was. Uh, Wasn't Tatiana Maslany in that? You she was. Get me to sit my ass in the theater even for Tatiana. She Maslany was the Faye Dunaway, that. absolutely, uh, in that in that uh, staging. Yeah. Anyway. Um, bah, bah, bah. oh, one other thing I think this movie does pretty well is it sort of walks up to the line of being one of those movies about how, um, being a great artist is justification for being a, you know, monster, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think you get a lot of that from the Claire Danes character where she's just like, Orson doesn't like to be criticized. Uh, Orson does this, Orson does that. We all put up with it because uh, he's a a genius artist and also our careers can benefit from this. And she's very sort of clear-eyed about this and the way she talks about, you know, sort of um, being very pragmatic about uh, the, you know, I'm going to date David Selznick and and it's going to advance my career and all this is on one level feels kind of like oh you know from a male perspective this must seem very uncomplicated and cool um but i think the film itself doesn't fall into the trap of lionizing wells Mm -hmm. too much and i think it's it it holds him 
at a distance and it doesn't like it's also not a movie where it's just like wells was a monster but it's just like mm-hmm. he's kind of a fool at times and he's kind and he's full of himself and he's yeah it kind of occupies this middle space that still allows us to be fascinated by him yes. and the creation of this piece um it's more frustrating, I think, for the Claire Danes character. You mentioned that it's like this movie's coming from a male perspective, and it's like, oh, isn't like not cool, but like she seems pretty chill with the whole deal, which doesn't seem to be authentic. Is my yes. thing? Yes. yes, like she seems very reserved that this is how this goes, and I don't have I'm seemingly yeah. a problem right. because I could get what I want, right? Um, which is maybe could be interesting i think the movie just kind of lets it be there but like to a certain degree i think it exposes that side of the business that like often gets overlooked entirely certainly in movies of this era and before it yeah um yeah i didn't really know what to make of it and yet i I think she's great in the movie like i think she lights up that screen whenever she's on i think she's incredibly engaging and she makes that character work to the degree that she does because of her performance and because she's Mm -hmm. so uh you know just luminescent is what i keep saying is never like trying to present her as an enlightened woman for the time right like she's uh, I wouldn't say sexually liberated, but she does have, like, a sense of sexual, like, choice in the matter. She's also not his manic pixie dream girl, which I think I think is probably no. an active choice on the film's part to not have her be to not have her be the person who sort of teaches him the ways of the world even though he does uh in many ways kind of come of age by falling for her, but like it, there's a there's a line there that that this film you know mm-hmm. does a good job of not crossing where she doesn't exist to make him a man even though she does take no. his virginity and all this sort of stuff. Well, and the manic pixie dream girl is Zoe Kazan, who also isn't really a manic or a pixie. You know what I mean? Like she's just again right. she's the, you know she just likes she's poetry. the nice she wants to be a writer. Girl. I really liked she her. I did in, really you know, like her. I know the movie really wants us to feel this way about her, but like, I think she nails it. I think she's so good in this. I mean, Zoe Kazan's a great actress, um, and can like absolutely uh, sell dog shit to a cat owner. Um, so, interestingly enough, about this era of Zoe Kazan's career, what was the first thing you ever saw her in? Um, I think I knew of her as a. Th- theater actress before i saw her in an actual movie okay um i think i mean maybe the first thing i saw her in was it's complicated okay the first thing i remember the first thing i ever remember noticing her in is revolutionary road which was 2008 she's great in that uh which was the year that this was that me and orson wells was supposed to come out um and i think those two and in that movie she's um the young sort of beguiling uh lures uh leo away from uh his wife and all this um but that was the first movie that i remember like oh this this is an actress named zoe kazan and she's in a thing and weirdly enough revolutionary road okay revolutionary road is the first movie i ever remember noticing zoe kazan and david harbour and katherine hahn like for a movie that i'm decidedly ambivalent on um 
really did a good job of uh, introducing new movie stars into my life and and thankful for that i mean i think all of the fringes of that movie are pretty spectacular we've talked about how much i hate michael shannon's performance in that movie but that's another story um i do love kathy bates in it though um (laughs) but like so contractually obligated to love kathy bates in it yeah but like especially for zoe kazan's sort of early years i thought there was it wasn't this like directly upward trajectory i thought there were certain things that i liked her in and certain things that i liked her less in um i didn't love her when i saw her in angels in america off broadway playing harper um that is a role that's sort of near and dear to my heart so it's like it's it's tough uh to compete with the mary louise parker who lives in my brain uh playing harper but that was um a really good and interesting production that had among other people billy porter and uh i saw the replacement cast the replacement cast is the cast i wish i would have seen because that had uh adam driver and the michael Yeri. that i saw in the replacement cast i forget the actress's name i apologize um but maybe it's better that i don't remember her name because it, she was not very good she just screamed um you got yeah, to see I saw Michael Yuri as uh, Prior uh, Walter. And and for as much as I thought Christian Borel was fantastic as Prior, I would have killed to have seen uh, Michael Yuri and Adam Driver. Well, and I saw um Adam Driver yeah. as Lewis, yeah. which was the first time I saw Adam Driver because I forget if Girls was even on at the point at that point, but I hadn't at least watched Girls, and I was like, "This actor is amazing." <laughs> I will. I think him Girls anywhere. happened just after that. I think. Yeah, I think. That would make sense. Does did did he work in that role? Because now I'm imagining the Adam Driver persona that I he know. He made me completely rethink the character. You, he Absolutely. would almost have to because like he's so forceful, and Lewis is not. Like he's sort of defined by being, uh, you uh, know, it, it, it like galaxy brained what that character could be. He worked beautifully. It was oh, fantastic. So jealous that you got to see that cast. Anyway, um. And now I feel like Zoe Kazan is an actress who I really love. I just, I, you know, movies like The Big Sick and whatnot. And um, uh, I remember Ruby Sparks really sort of like turning me around, not turning me around, but like really sort of enhancing my opinion of her, not only as an actress, but as a writer. Um, I really like her. She's also pretty cool on Twitter. And it's hard to be cool as a celebrity on Twitter. Like she manages to like keep her head above water in a way that, very few celebrities do so good for her i don't know i like turn this movie we want a lot. nothing but the best for her and paul she also kind of has um uh what's linda cardellini's character in legally blonde's name uh, chutney chutney uh, uh chutney from legally blonde hair in this movie a little bit right <laughs> not totally oh, not poor wig they gave her it's it's a lot, but she's so lovely. I really liked her. It makes the movie end on a really kind of satisfying note that he ends up with her, even though I do feel like by far Efron is the weak link of this movie. Oh yeah, he, he, I don't think he's very good in this movie, unfortunately. And I am not de- um, I'm not anti Zac Efron as a rule. We've talked about this, but like I hate to say this to uh, like uh, that I wouldn't want to see Zoe Kazan because I do really really like her as an actress. But I think this is also a better movie if you completely cut out everything to do with her character. This movie is way too long for what it is. Yeah, you could cut out her character and lose at least ten minutes. And... That's fair. But also, again. It's the happiest I was in the whole movie. Yeah, I think, I think, 
Efron was not ready for a movie like this and a role like this. He just wasn't. And especially when he has to be like pouty yeah. and upset. Or wise. Like, like he becomes he sort of wise is... by the end of the movie, and I don't think that works on him very well either. Yeah. It's interesting because the actor he there the actor that was in the role that he played is not the character that he's playing. This is like a, a complete... His character is a complete fabrication. Right. Though, like, the... Um, apparently the fire alarm bit that you mentioned uh, in your 60-second plot w- did happen right. with this actor. So it's like, that's the only thing that they kept. But it wasn't that it was while they were still in rehearsals. It was actually during the production. It's because he was bored. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad. I don't want, you know, not to dump on Zac Efron, but like it's it when your lead character, when your sort of POV character and your entry point into all of this is the weak link, it mm-hmm. it handicaps the movie. There's a lot about this movie that I really do like, but I think ultimately I get why it didn't ever really catch on as an awards right. play. This isn't the and type it's of tough movie that's me- really gonna, like, sing in awards season, even though, like, we haven't talked about Christian McKay, and that's, like, the reason that kept it there. But, like, this would be a perfectly nice movie to see in the spring, you know, when you just need, like, nice movies that are well-made. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. If you catch this movie on, you know, premium cable or whatever, and it's, you know, in the midst of it, stick with it. It's, you know, it's a good little, yeah. it's a it's an okay little movie, is what I will say. Efron is also at a disadvantage, I think, too, because these, like, the movies that this movie is similar to, I think, for the most part, better than the movies it's similar to. That role is a trope that is always I hate that trope. uninteresting to watch. Yep. It's like, I thought about my week with Marilyn a lot yep. while, we, yep. while I watched this movie, and not just because of your spectacular uh, hairspray release. That is why I tweeted that, because I was thinking of my week with Marilyn, uh, which I do sing in my head to the tune of Good Morning Baltimore. You, by the way, and Katie, with your psychotic uh, follow-ups to that, were driving me uh yes katie and i uh, became demons in your mentions because i said without love should be sung to the tune of albert knobs i said you can't stop the beat should be midnight in paris but midnight in paris (laughs) that case um oh oh, midnight in paris yeah i was (laughs) stop it i'm gonna kill you uh, I love w- to be a demon. I was but trying to like, think of other movies, though, in that genre where it was just like, I'm just an ordinary person, and I spent a few days with this major star, and like, and, and the story's going to be about me. Life. Yeah, like, also, I loved her. Uh, yeah, Eddie Redmayne's character in My Week with Marilyn is really hard to take, and the gender Nightmare politics fuel. of that make that even worse. But like, me and Orson Welles, it's the same thing. Where it's, and I even got that a little bit in uh, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, even though that's about like an actual like romantic relationship mm-hmm. or whatever. But like, the rules don't apply. Yeah, rules don't apply. Do an episode on that nightmare. But like, your proximity to uh, these big great stars doesn't make you more interesting. Like that's no. it. No. No. Ugh, I don't know. And it, it, this movie, it made it even less interesting because that he's not playing the real person that he was. So this is just like you created this character and you made him boring. 
Also, we see stuff with like him and his mom, him and his grandma, him at school, him at school at the end where he recites a monologue from Julius Caesar and everybody applauds him. And it's just like, A, I don't care. And B, bullshit when his, when his classmates have applauded right. him. Yeah, if somebody does that in a in a classroom, especially in high school, yeah, no yeah. one's going to clap for you. Everybody's going to roll your eyes at that kid. We all had class with that kid and no one liked that. Right. Meanwhile, there's like all these like really interesting other members of the Mercury Company, which I would have enjoyed maybe spending a little bit more time with. Finding out that Eddie Marson played was playing John Houseman, I thought was really interesting. And also, much as I thought Eddie Marson was really good in this movie, um, a missed opportunity to cast an Oscar winner to play Oscar winner John Houseman, because it's very few of that trivia category of Oscar winners who've played Oscar winners. Well, I thought about this, and maybe my timeline is off, and I'm pretty sure actually my timeline is... No, it's not. It's not, because this was uh, 05 or 06, maybe. But I was like, yeah, but Bob Hoskins already uh, had Mrs. Henderson Presents. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what's that connection? No, it's just the Eddie Marzan character in this movie made me think of oh, Bob Hoskins. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that Bob Hoskins was an Oscar winner who played an Oscar winner, and I don't think either of those things. No, he wasn't nominated for that movie. No, he was he was buzzed for that movie, but weirdly enough, for as successful as uh, Judy Dench, uh, her Oscar campaign. How dare they? Was... He showed his, he showed his whole peen for that movie. All right, I want to talk about now that we're talking about best supporting actors. Um, Christian McKay's Oscar buzz for this and then the resulting Oscar field for the 2009 Best Supporting Actor race. So Christian Mm -hmm. McKay is essentially an unknown, gets cast in this movie because Richard Linklater saw his one-man performance of a play called Rosebud at the Edinburgh Festival and was so impressed by his sort of version of Wells. And as we see in the movie, rightly so, it's a really, really good Orson Wells. He's entertaining to watch. I he mean, is. I really think it it probably came down to people not being enthusiastic for this movie for the nomination to not happen. Correct. Also, nobody saw this um, movie. Also, nobody saw it. Oh, oh, I mean, it gets, you know, it ends up on NBR. We'll mention that in a second. The, well, the thing is, critics, saw it. critics clearly watched yes. their screeners that they did because he kept getting, like, second place or third place critics nominations yes. or, like, the critics groups that do, like, a full nomination lineup. He would get nominated by them, but, like, not really win any. What is, what is, see. what's your conception of his performance? Is this a great performance or is this a great impersonation? Um, I mean, I think it's a good performance, an entertaining performance. I don't think it would be a bad nomination, especially against some of the performances that we'll get did into that get nominated. For sure. Yeah. Um, it's a great impersonation, though. It really is. Like it, it gets it's, and it's not a big impsonation. That's the other thing. It's he's not like you know, um, bellowing it's more these like great our sort of wells and wells because like. This is one of the areas that I think could have made the movie a little bit more interesting. Um, it's it's like our concept of Orson Welles. Like, he appears to be, like, 35, 40 years old in this movie. Yeah. When this production of Caesar happened, Orson Welles was 22. Right, right, right. It's like having a petulant Timothy Chalamet He's or something. Xavier Dolan doing uh, doing Julius Caesar on on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. Which I think would have a huge impact on like the dynamic of the movie if it was this younger guy 
acting the way that he acts and people still bowing down to him. That makes us understand it. Like that's a huge like I do get detail. Yeah, that contextualize contextualizes Orson Welles at this time, at least for me. Twenty two um, is different in nineteen thirty seven than it is in twenty or in two thousand nine. I do get that. Sure, but you're right. Like a younger. Uh, a younger concept of Orson Welles definitely puts it in not only a more accurate context, but probably in a more interesting context. I think that's right. Especially when the lead character of the movie is 17, 18 years old. Right. So it's like he's treating him like he's a kid. Right. Because he has all this power, but like he's barely older than him. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the 2009 Oscars, which I think are an odd oscars just in general this is the first year that we did 10 best picture nominees this was that's where most of the attention was and of course on also on the big movie little movie dynamic between avatar avada as uh uh, arnold schwarzenegger Schwarzenegger says and uh and the hurt locker the james cameron catherine bigelow thing took up a lot of oxygen and also then the sandra bullock thing in best actress took up a lot of oxygen the monique thing in supporting actress took up a lot of oxygen and so i think this is by far when i try and Sometimes when I try and calm my brain, I try and uh, remember lineups of supporting actor and actress fields because my brain is special, is what I'll say. Um, (laughs) I have a bitch of a time trying to remember 2009 because, A, because Christoph Waltz waltzed away with that award like there was just mm-hmm. like he won everything and there was never that's a question part of the problem too is like he steamrolled the whole season in a way that like when you have a performer that does that level of like everybody just hands it to them basically you end up with weird lineups it's also a lineup this is one of where them. with the exception of christoph waltz and inglorious bastards none of the other nominees come from best picture nominees which is pretty rare mm-hmm. for supporting actor so i i only ever remember matt damon and invictus because of who remembers it? Be, Invictus is so unmemorable that it now becomes a thing where it's just like, don't forget Invictus <laughs> because He's it's so easy to forget it. basically the lead of the movie, and it was probably of the other nominees, the absolute closest to a Best Picture nomination. Right. Uh, but it's also and the it one wasn't. where uh, it's still the only one in this field that I haven't seen. And uh, it was such a, like, sort of notorious for just like, I can't believe they're nominating Clint Eastwood's Invictus for uh, actor and supporting actor. Other nominees, Woody Harrelson, I think, is quite good in The Messenger. I think The Messenger is quite a good movie that like pe- nobody really talks about anymore. But I think I don't love the movie, but like we've seen Woody Harrelson give that performance elsewhere. I guess I think he's very good. I think Ben Foster in that movie is great, and I would have loved yeah. a Ben Foster nomination for that. Uh, of course, the notorious Stanley Tucci nomination for The Lovely Bones. When Julie and Julia was not only right there, but an Oscar nominee in another category. Like, the fact that Meryl Streep couldn't coattail Stanley Tucci onto the Lovely Bones, yet they decided, or on, uh, 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 in Julie and Julia to a nomination, and instead they decided- Julia had the, like, any scrap of the best picture buzz that I think, like, it would have fairly had for the movies that 
the other movies that were in contention to fill out the 10. Like, I do think that could have changed, but like... Get me started on a Justice for Julie and Julia uh, uh, bent, and I will never stop. Because A, not only is that a underrated movie it's it was so much like it was seen as the Merrill show at the time and like mm-hmm. i think justice for nora efron justice for amy adams's character who is difficult but she does such a good job with her justice for stanley tucci justice for that adapted screenplay which like i'm gonna tell you some adapted screenplays that got nominated well, i'm gonna tell you one adapted screenplay that got nominated instead of julie and julia mm-hmm. and that's fucking district nine and i will burn a bitch down before I like it's just so <laughs> infuriating well see District 9 was the one that uh probably got that 10th spot um yeah presumably and it was like it was down to movies as far as predictions were going in the season like what was happening with the precursors that people were like well maybe it could be Star Trek and it's like Okay, I do really like that Star Trek, but if you're if that's getting close, why the hell isn't Julie and Julia getting close? But the um, but the narrative at the time, the the quote unquote wounds from the Dark Knight and Wally not getting nominated, yeah, meant that was, Up was absolutely getting nominated for sure, and a blockbuster summer style action movie was getting nominated, and it was either going to be and and weirdly enough, Avatar seemed to not satisfy that that itch for people like avatar being the front runner like you could be like is that not action blockbuster enough for you and they were like no it had to have opened in the summer and it's just like okay fine so then it was going to be either star most people actually thought it was going to be star trek and it ended up being district nine and in the meantime you know what else was a summer blockbuster julian fucking julia for God's Almost sake! Hundred million. God for damn God's dollars. sake! About cooking, about chopping onions perfectly, and about how great butter is, and fucking buff bourguignon, and it was a blockbuster, and you missed it, you monsters. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, Stanley Tucci was nominated for a film called The Lovely Bones that nobody liked. So stupid. It was about recognizing Stanley Tucci. I think we all are in agreement that if we want to recognize Stanley Tucci, we recognize Julia and Julia. But, like, what I don't understand about that is, like, the aversion to Julia and Julia is definitely a male snobbery. But, like, why the fuck didn't you have it for the Lovely Bones? Is it really just the influence of Peter Jackson? Like... I genuinely don't know. You could totally see that movie being a uh, victim to male snobbery, too. So it's like, whatever. I, yeah. Uh, the thing about the two worst nominations in this category, which are Tucci's nomination and Christopher Plummer for The Last Station, which is not a bad performance, but it's a film that truly nobody saw. And yeah. nobody cared when they did. Where, like, even Helen Mirren, who uh, is also nominated in Best Actress, when Sandy Bullock is, like, recognizing all of her other nominees. I don't even remember what she says about Helen Mirren, but it's like, oh, Sandra didn't see it. Sandra didn't watch the movie. I think she weirdly says, like, he- Helen... Like she has to come up with something. She says something like, Helen Mirren, you're like family, and I can't... Re- I'm not entirely sure. Um, Gabby, I love you so much. You are exquisite. You are beyond words to me. Carrie, your grace and your elegance and your beauty and your talent makes me sick. Um... <laughs> 
Helen, I feel like we are family through family, and I, I don't have the words to express just what I think of you and Meryl. You know what I think of you, and you're such a good kisser. Made me think, like, were they in a movie together or something like that? But it's it does sort of, like, it's little it's afterthought. I can also sure. just envision Helen Mirren being nice to literally everybody. Absolutely. Totally. Helen Mirren actually would have been a really good addition to Ocean's 8. Helen Mirren in that instead of uh, Fast 8 would have been a good swap. You know what I mean? Anyway. Mm. Um, but the thing about the Plumber nomination is... He had never been nominated before. He was one of those long-standing actors, Donald Sutherland style. We've never nominated yeah. him for an Oscar before. He was like, and who knew that it would like touch off like the greatest run for an octogenarian at the Oscars ever, where all of a sudden he's nominated for The Last Station. He wins two years later for Beginners. And then he gets the wildest goddamn nomination ever, where he steps in for uh, Spacey in All the Money in the World and gets nominated for that. But at this and point, people thought that that nomination was a fuck you to Spacey, and I really don't think that's no. why people nominated him. I, I think, think they, they really, really like, just Chris- like Christopher Plummer that much right now. I also feel like I think he's really good in the movie, though. I like that movie. I stand up for that movie. I mean, I don't hate that movie. I don't love it, but like, I think part of the Plummer nomination for that is a that they really love Christopher Plummer. But I think they gave him degree of difficulty points, where it's just like, oh wow, how tough to have to step into that movie and reshoots. You and- shot this two weeks ago, right? Right. Um, I don't love that nomination, though. I think it could have gotten to other people uh, at the time. Anyway, The Last Station, again, he's playing Tolstoy. It's a movie nobody saw. But people were happy that finally Christopher Plummer was an Oscar nominee. So it's a right. real weird year. We, uh, it's it's a year where other things could have definitely showed up there. Now I want to look up the... Um, the well the BAFTAs are interesting right because that's where McKay does get nominated the only other mm-hmm. uh Oscar holdovers there are Christoph Waltz and Stanley Tucci and the Lovely Bones of course because you can't not do it um but it's a stronger lineup in general it's Alec Baldwin for It's Complicated which I think is a really interesting nomination and one <laughs> I don't hate I don't know about you Maybe I need to. I mean, we did a whole episode on it. I can't remember anything I said. He's I not in like, my top five, I but like... I think it's an interesting nomination. Yeah, fine. <laughs> but the one I think you would probably agree with more is uh, Alfred Molina in An Education. Which Critics' Choice also nominated him for. Yeah, there was a while there. Molina's still never gotten an Oscar nomination. Where, which... I love Alfred Molina. I know. Um, never tell me his politics. I don't want to know. Oh, do you think he has weird politics? That's what I fear when it's like, actor you love, but you have no idea what their personal opinions are on anything. Don't tell me. Interesting. I don't know. know. You know, I won't. But like, but there was a while there were like, it seemed like he might get a nomination for Frida. It didn't happen. It seemed like Mm -hmm. he might get a nomination for an education. It didn't happen. Um, Weirdly, the Golden... If he got nominated at SAG. Maybe. I'll look that up next. The Golden Globe nominations matched the Oscars entirely, which is another... That's the other weird thing about this 2009 supporting actors, is that, like, it's an odd set of nominations that seemed, like, very resolute among the uh, awards community that year. Um, I don't know. I don't know, man. It's weird. All right. SAG nominees that year were Waltz, Damon... No, it's the same. It's the goddamn same. Waltz, Damon, Harrelson, Plummer, Tucci. Apparently, those were the five that year that everybody fucking agreed on. It's so strange. I don't know, man. That's 
wild. Give me a second. Give me half a second, and I want to look up mine now because I can't imagine I had anybody from that list besides Christoph Waltz on mine. I might have had Harrelson actually, but I don't know if I would stick with that to this day. I'll look up mine too. I know who my winner is off the top of my head, and you can argue that this is a leading performance, but it was the one that kept boiling my brain the entire season that it didn't get mentioned, especially in the wider context of the season, and that's Anthony Mackie for The Hurt Locker. My, Mackie's on my list as well. Um, he's great in that He's film. the best performance of that movie. Oh, I think Renner's the best performance of that movie, but Mackie's oh, up there. Oh, no, no, no. Anthony Mackie is fucking great in that He's movie. great. I think Renner is too. Um, so, okay, yeah, my list, oh, wow, I have Vaults in sixth, sixth place. I was being probably a little bratty at this moment. I think Vaults is very good in Inglorious Bastards. It's arguably a lead performance. It's one of those, like, that movie maybe doesn't have one lead because it's this, the narrative is so, uh, fractured, but, like, every scene he's in, he's the, fo- he's the focal point, and whatever. Anyway, my five were, I was very cheeky, wasn't I? Okay, Peter Capaldi for In the Loop is my winner that year. I genuinely That's definitely on mine. That it's in it's for a movie that got nominated for screenplay, it's wild that they didn't take the next logical step and pick like the most spectacular performance from that film. I know they hate comedy, but like he's amazing in that movie. Um Anthony Mackie. I have Paul Schneider for Bright Star, and maybe I'm pretty sure it was just that I fucking loved Bright Star so much. Like Paul Schneider's good in that movie, but I don't know if I would still um pick him out i think i'd probably put waltz in that spot and stop being such a brat um i absolutely stand behind adam brody and jennifer's body i think adam brody and jennifer's body is so fucking good and so such a fucking bastard and in the best possible way and like really embodies that kind of toxic boy in a band uh persona that i think he's uh, so good in it and then i also have zach woods from in the loop who I fucking adore Zach Woods. And he's such, talk about a brat. Like, he's so, <laughs> such, like, a weaselly little dick to Anna Klumsky in that movie. I think he's really fantastic. So that's that's my list. I think... On my long list, Tucci and Julie and Julia. Uh, Chris Messina in Away We Go, actually, which I think he's I really like good in. Fred Melamed in A Serious Man. Sigh, <laughs> Abelman! <laughs> okay, yeah. so I have Waltz. I have the Tooch. For the right one. Um, I also have Anthony Mackie, probably my winner. I have uh, yeah. Peter Capaldi, as you do. Our lists are always like overlapping on three. Uh, and then my fifth is yeah. also Fred Melamed from A Serious Man. He's, He's so great. Good. He's, He's great in that film. National treasure. He's wonderful. Yeah, I think if I did it now, it would be Capaldi, Mackie, Brody, Vaults, and Tucci. Serious Man is my with like Melamed closely after and Zach Woods closely thereafter. Yeah, yeah. Ours are better. Sorry, Oscars. Like you fucked up. (laughs) I mean, they nominated a Serious Man for Best Picture. Why was nobody? Nobody again. Nobody was talking about any of the performances in a Serious Man, which is so stupid because like Stuhlbarg should be an Oscar nominee for that movie. He's probably my winner. A Serious Man gets, what, two nominations for uh, picture and, and picture. screenplay? And it's one of those things where it's just like, if you're not going to take this movie seriously, don't bother nominating it for Best Picture. Like, I thought it was such a weird, like, 
best picture nominee for a movie that that still they seem to only sort of like tepidly enjoy and like i don't love a serious man i think a serious man is probably the most that i ever get on board with the idea that like the coens are are saying fuck you to the audience like a serious man to me is a real fuck you to the audience but i do think it has some real strong points its performances especially i think not nom i think if michael stuhlbarg is a known guy he gets nominated Right. Because it's insane. Like, it's him not getting nominated for that and Paul Giamatti not getting nominated for Sideways are in the same bucket for me, which is that I'm sorry that these aren't, you know, big A-list stars, but they give perfect performances. So shut up. Like, what are we doing here? I mean, the Serious Man Best Picture nomination is probably also, like, an amalgam of it's the first year of the 10 in a way that they didn't know how to be enthusiastic about a wide set of movies. And that was a Coen's movie right after no country. We just talked about burn after reading. If it had been a 10, the year of burn after reading, I think burn after reading probably could have been a nominee, even though it could have been nominated for anything else, but like just the way that conversation changes. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Do we want to, Say anything else about that year's Oscars before we transition into uh, this rumor that I heard that you have a game for me? I do have a game for you. Um, I don't know what else to say about the Oscars other than the men's races are some of the more boring ones. And that's a normal thing for the male acting races to be boring. Um, Yeah. Supporting actor lineup is abysmal. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Anyway. Christian McKay, you were screwed. You would have been better than most of those nominations. So, Joseph. Yes. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, we are celebrating Claire Danes' welcoming into Seven Timers Club on this podcast. Yes. Can you name the seven movies that Claire Danes, uh, the movies that we have mentioned on this podcast that she stars in? Sure. Um, It's complicated. Or not, it's uh, Family Stone. Family Stone. I, I, I got my family uh, uh, dramedies uh, <laughs> confused. Family Stone, uh, of course, The Great Evening, uh, Mia Norson Wells, Shop yes. Girl. Shop That's Girl. That's Four. Uh, Jillian is five. Tijillion. Um, uh, What was our most, what was the one that gave her six for us? That was um, uh, the, the Rainmaker. The, the great, Rainmaker. The You're rainmaker. missing one. Which is her smallest role, to be fair. Oh, Quilt. Uh, American, American Quilt. quilt. Flashbacky, flashbacky. Uh, she's young Ellen Burstyn in uh, How to Make an American Quilt? I think Or young so. Anne Bancroft? One Maybe, of the two. No, she's not young Anne Bancroft because she... You don't really see much of her. Well, it's the it's two the of them, thing. right? We get young versions of the two of them. The two sisters, right? Yeah, but they have the really contentious relationship. So, like, them as younger people are, like, a key plot. Like, a a key sequence of the movie. Right. So I'm going to look that up. How to make... That's how little she's in the movie. You don't remember who she is. I actually think she's, like, young Lois Smith. Okay, hold on a second. Claire Danes in How to Make an American Quilt. God, I love Lois Smith. I looked up my letterbox log for... um, this year the other day just to like see what my two my 2020 stats are most Uh watched actor of the year isabelle huper we know that of my second most watched actor lois smith (laughs) oh that's amazing yeah no claire danes was young and bancroft and alicia goranson from uh roseanne was young uh, uh, ellen burston interesting 
So not how I remembered it. Anyway, Wait, Joseph. So your most watched is Lois Smith. That's fantastic. Sorry, I the didn't give that watch. My first most watched is Isio Pair. Of course. Yes. Of course. You are never not watching an Isabelle Huppert uh, film. It resets my it resets my clock, recharges my batteries in a way that's been really valuable in quarantine. I love it. Even if the movie's not great, she's always great. Um, anyway, so I yes. have a game for you. Recently, we've been playing Alter Egos, where we list uh, previous characters that uh, their co-stars have been in. Yes. That's not the game I have for you today. The game I have for you today is a game... I like to call parental advisory, where we look at the parents' guide on IMDb yes. uh, and all of their sometimes rather uh, odd uh-huh. <laughs> descriptions of what makes a movie uh, frightening for audiences. Sex and nudity, <laughs> right, violence, exactly. language, smoking and drinking. Disrespect to elders. Disrespect to elders. Some of these are uh, very fun, but what I am going to do for you in this game, I'm going to read you the notes from the parents' guide of these seven films on IMDb, uh, again, across those categories, and you have to tell me what the movie is. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. We've already listed the seven films, so we're on to the topic. You have to tell me what the movie is. Your first is we see the female lead laying naked on a bed. She is lying on her stomach, and her bare buttocks are seen. This is, of course, the original rump shaker, uh, Shop Girl. <laughs> Shop Girl is correct. Uh, your next question. An intoxicated yes. man is hit by a car, and we later see his contorted body as his friends find him. Oh, that's poor Hugh Dancy and Evening, Yes. Yes, indeed. Evening yeah. is correct. Your next question. It is strongly implied that female character sleeps with both two male characters. At the same time? Is that Not also evening? Time. No. Is that How to Make an American Quilt? No, it is me and Orson Welles. I will give you Oh, the right, because it's on... <laughs> Consecutive yes, I'm nights. taking out the name, any character names. Yeah, yes. A woman is seen with a black eye and somewhat bruised face in one or two scenes. Yes, and then is avenged by uh, her uh, her beloved throwing a wall cabinet at her abuser. That's the Rainmaker. Indeed, it is John Grisham's The Rainmaker. Next question. A woman is shown naked in a bathtub and we briefly see her breasts several times unnecessarily. Oh no. Um bathtub. This is why I love this game. People get really uh butthurt. Yeah. Um Is that how to make an American in a bathtub quilt? and we briefly see her breasts several times unnecessarily. Is that how to make an American quilt? Indeed it is how to make an American quilt. Yeah. On to your next one. Both the female and male leads are seen drinking wine on several occasions. Wow. How scandalous. <laughs> um, Shop Girl? Shop Girl. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Shop Girls, which was like, it shows her butt. They drink wine. The end. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's the show. <laughs> yep. Uh, a woman poses nude for an artist, and we see her buttocks and brief quick glimpses of her breasts as the man climbs on top of her and begins kissing her. That's how to make an American quilt. Indeed, it is how to make an American quilt, famously with uh, uh, painting and such drawings. Yes, right. 
All right. Female character makes a comment about her youngest daughter had a former boyfriend who, finger <laughs> quotes, popped her cherry and then says, the poor guy's still holding out. Guess he's got a taste of something he liked. Oh, my beloved Sybil Stone in The Family Stone. Yes, they uh, went into long detail on that sure note. Did. And that line is also funny. He so popped Amy's cherry. It's true. Uh, next question. A yes. man, obviously intoxicated, very briefly kisses another man. Oh, evening. Sad. Evening. Sad gay longing. Sad Hugh Dancy. All, uh, pretty much all of the uh, evening parents' guide notes are just the sad things that happen to Hugh Dancy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. All right. Next question. A young woman and her grandmother and great aunt share a joint. Oh, well, that's how to make an American quilt. Yes, that is the sensational How to Make an American Quilt. <laughs> this next one. There is no nudity. However, there is a couple of scenes where you see two teenage girls wearing thongs, and in one, the girl shows the other girl how her breasts appeal larger in one suit and then shows the other girl how to walk or strut in a thong bikini. Wow. That is the um, the beach beach blanket jailbait in uh to jillian on her 37th birthday it is indeed that uh long run-on sentence is from to jillian on her 37th birthday a female character's car rolls down a snowbank when she is trying to drive away quickly the car eventually comes to a stop though and she is unharmed family stone the family stone yeah teen vomiting after drinking on her dad's feet to jillian to jillian uh, that's a parenthetical on on her dad's feet. Uh, a woman leads a woman, or no, 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 sorry. A man leads a woman into a shack where she takes off his shirt and undershirt, and they start kissing passionately. Not a shack, honey. Um. Oh, is Someone that was even... playing mash? And they got shack. <laughs> they ended up with a shack in a shack with a homosexual because I think that's evening. It is evening, but it's not. Oh a no, it's Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson. Well, close enough. Uh, <laughs> we're wrapping up the game. Saved a couple good ones for last. Taking the Lord's name in vain. Oh, no. <laughs> Not the Lord. Taking the Lord's name in vain. The Rainmaker, I don't know. The Rainmaker, how did you get that? I guess that's probably the audience that would be offended by right. someone taking the aforementioned lord's name in vain i just you hadn't had one on the rainmaker in a while so i sort of gamed this sure sure the rainmakers was also like that and all of the bad things that happened to claire danes in that movie yeah <laughs> um ah here we are second to last question there are people singing terribly Oh, God, that could be so many things. <laughs> it's the parental advisory in frightening scenes. They wrote, there are people singing terribly. Orson Welles? No. There are people singing terribly. Evening. No, it is a karaoke culture uh, pinnacle to Jillian on her 37th Stop. birthday. Stop. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. In case that frightens anybody, don't watch to Jillian if you're afraid of terrible singing. <laughs> All right, last question. Here we go. Ten goddamn, six son of a bitch, one regular bitch, one piece of shit, three ass, one asshole, two hell, one flipping off, and three shit. What a glorious, glorious film. Is this The Family Stone? 
It is not. Damn it. I guess they're not that vulgar in the family stone. They could be. Um, is that uh, Orson Welles? Me and Orson Welles. Correct, we Joseph. Yeah. I think you got a good A- minus on this. Yeah, thank you. I, well I love done. a good A-. minus. Okay. Once again, that is parental advisory. Wonderful. Um, Dane, Seven Timers Club. Who's uh, who's chasing her tail? Uh, probably Meryl. Meryl is is six and 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 ready to pounce. Our other six timers are, of course, Naomi Watts, Anthony Hopkins, and uh, Dermot Mulroney. And also, uh, have we mentioned the asterisk on Matt Damon? Because well, because Matt Damon uh, is a voice in one of them, right? He's a cameo in. Finding Forrester and a voice in the Majestic, and I think we counted one and not the other. I think, I think we were being... you wanted to not count the Majestic. I think that's right. I don't know. I'm probably that's just probably like, fair. I didn't want to have Matt Damon get to a six timer with like two asterisks. Like we would just we'll wait for the next you know real Matt Damon performance. There, listeners, are le- yell at us if you think uh, Matt Damon's one voiceover line in the Majestic counts. Right. Exactly. God. Feels like nine years ago that we did the majestic on this i podcast. know i know exactly and that was our third matt damon episode Jesus. um uh, anyway anyway yeah. orson wells not i don't think it's a bad movie it didn't get bad reviews no it, it's not a bad movie it's not a great movie but it's not a bad movie um there was the, <laughs> there was that one line i thought was very cheesy when wells just goes like nearly looks at the camera and just goes, "How the hell do I top this?" After uh, Julius Caesar does so well, and it's just like, "All right, we get it." Citizen Kane's a coming. We get also, it. Also, he did a ton of shit before Citizen Kane, so like, yeah. Also, we didn't mention that uh, we're doing this episode uh, on the eve of Mank. Manks Mank. for the memories. Uh, uh, Mank you for smoking other things. Uh, and I want to thank you for giving me the best day of my life. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> hate you. All right. Anyway, my tea's gone cold now, and I'm wondering why we're not playing the IMDb game right now. Uh, should we move into the IMDb game? Let's. Would you like to explain uh, to our listeners in your best Orson Welles impersonation oh, what the God. IMDb game is? The problem with me trying to do an Orson Welles impersonation is it becomes um, Maurice LaMarche doing Orson Welles on The Critic. Did you ever watch The Critic? Yes, I loved that. When they did the like... Was the or- weird nine-year-old that watched The Critic. When Orson Welles was narrating the parents' video will when the parents were presumed dead. And also they showed the... Uh, and he was doing it in the style of the uh, um, the product placement ads that he w- he was doing sort of late in his career and he was talking about like rosebud yes rosebud frozen peas full of country goodness and green penis wait that's terrible i quit just a handful for the road oh what luck there's a french fry stuck in my beard <laughs> i remember that bit i feel like if i did an orson wells it would just become robert goulet <laughs> that's fair that's uh that's not a bad uh, presentation anyway 
Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years. It's a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of uh, cryptic hints as to the identity of Rosebud and uh, mm-hmm. other such Wellsian things. Rosebud. All right. That's the IMTV game. All right. So do you want to guess first? Do you want to give first? Why don't I give first? All right. What do we got? What's going so, on? What's happening? Uh, <laughs> I tend to go uh, via the director when I do this. And Richard Linkletter certainly gives me a wealth of possibilities. One of his uh, movies that nobody really talks about anymore that I didn't even mention in this episode is 1998's The Newton Boys, his uh, his Western, which was about a, lot a of boys family in that movie. of bank robbers, bank robbing boys. This was... Uh, Matthew McConaughey and Skeet Ulrich and um, uh, Ethan Hawke, of course, was in this. And the performer that I have chosen for you is uh, also in this. And that's Mr. Vincent D'Onofrio. Ah, the D'Onof. The Cell. Of course, that is the first one that you have guessed, and of course, that is correct. I have to represent for our weird gays that love the cell. As the demonic serial killer who hangs himself from the uh, notches in his back. dead bodies. Yes, Vincent D'Onofrio's The Cell is correct. Okay, uh, Men in Black. Yes, as uh, the Edgar suit. He's wearing an Edgar Um, suit. (laughs) <laughs> Siobhan Fallon is so good in she Men really in Black. Is. Um, mm, uh, is there TV? Nope. Okay, so no, uh, no criminal intent. Right. Uh, uh, Jurassic World. No, that's a very good one. That is Strike mm. Owen. Uh, nobody needs reminded that that movie exists. Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Correct. Full Metal Jacket, Private Pile. Awesome. The look, it's, I mean, we've seen it clipped a bunch of times, but yeah, the yeah, look yeah, on yeah. his face when he's in the bathroom, when he's got the gun, and he's sort of like staring through his upper eyebrows at uh, Matthew Modine is It so is upsetting. Goddamn frightening. Stanley Kubrick can shoot a shot. Anyway, yes, three out of four with one strike. Okay. Um... Huh. I don't. I know he's in the Salton Sea, and I remember one time you gave me someone in the Salton Sea, and I think I got stuck on it, and I don't want that to happen again. But I'm I'm gonna hope that I'm lucky enough this time. That it's not that. So I think it's I think it's one that you got stumped on for someone else, and I'm gonna guess the thirteenth floor. It is not the 13th floor. I love that as a guess for you. Ah. Before I give you your remaining year, I want to give you a upcoming role of his in a film that I know you are looking forward to. Do you know he plays Jerry Falwell in The Eyes of Tammy Faye? Baby, yes, I do know that he plays Jerry Falwell in The Eyes of Tammy Faye. This movie that's probably going to be bad, but I am I'm excited absurdly for excited for this movie. I think Jessica Chastain is actually perfect. Jessica Chastain's internet presence 
makes her perfect for Tammy Faye. <laughs> it's her a great very cast. Earnest, uh, like uh, unself-aware uh, presence. That's Chastain, also slightly self-aware. Makes D'Onofrio, Andrew Garfield, Cherry Jones. Andrew Garfield will be the chaos agent in that movie. Uh, Andrew Garfield is James Baker. I am, uh, or Jim Baker. Uh, I am super looking forward to. Anyway, uh, your remaining year is 1994. 94. Okay, so pre-Men in Black. Yes. Um, huh. What year was Strange Days? Strange Days was, I believe, 95. Yeah, so that's not the answer. Um, he, I'm, I, I can't remember his role in Strange Days, but I, rem- oh I, I, I bet it's frightening because everybody. I know what this is, and I feel real dumb now. And you did this on purpose. I did because he plays Orson Welles in Ed Wood. He sure freaking And we does. also talked about Tim Burton at yep. the top of the episode. Yep. You tried to incept it into my brain. I was I, I didn't, didn't I didn't come to this selection because he plays Orson Welles and Ed Wood, but when I saw that that was on his known for, I was like, yeah, that's the one I gotta pick. He is a good Orson Welles though. Yeah, he is. What a wonderful film, Ed Wood. <laughs> that's an and that's a really cool known for for Vincent D'Onofrio. I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty iconic. Yeah. All right, so for you, I just went to the Oscar route. We talked about this performance that we hate in comparison uh, with one that we love. Joe Reed, I gave you noted um, uh, jerk when talking about the type of vermouth I use uh, on the internet. (laughs) Did you Uh, take that personally? Oh, no, don't take it personally when he uh, slights your vermouth. I take it personally that he doesn't post daily cocktail videos because very handsome very handsome i thought you were gonna say being a jerk uh about uh robert de niro did you ever show you or have you seen the clip on the view from when they were promoting the devil wears prada and it was meryl and stanley tucci and anne hathaway on the view and i haven't seen this meryl and tucci were talking about her uh i thought i had mentioned this on the podcast before maybe not her um uh, games of charades that she does at her house and how the best ones at charades are oh fuck i can't remember who else but like steven sondheim and somebody were like they're the best ones and tucci just goes to meryl he goes tell him who the worst one is and she goes i can't and he's like tell him he's like i can't say it but you can say it and she just says robert de niro is so bad at charades <laughs> <laughs> that tracks that it's tracks. a really good moment i love it all right stanley the two i want Tucci. someone to do an impersonation of de niro playing charades by the way anybody wanting to put that out in the universe please do i will appreciate it the two right. stanley tucci's in a billion things high and lowbrow alike i'm going to risk pissing myself off all again and gonna guess julie and julia no. God damn it. <laughs> is the Lovely Bones one of them? The Lovely Bones, yes. <laughs> of course it is. We live in a cruel and unfeeling universe. Of course it is. Okay. You know what I'm going to guess? Because this has shown up for other people. I'm going to guess burlesque. No. <laughs> Fuck. All right. Fine. So that's your two wrong guesses. Just give New me the years. years. Uh, 1996 
2013 and 2015. So not Devil Wears Prada. 2013, 2015, and 96 has got to be Big Night. Big Night, yes. All right. 13 and 15. 15 is Spotlight? Yes. Big Night Spotlight. He's not in Moonlight. Um, 2013, Zituch. It's not I think easy. This is piss a. You off. It's not the Transformers movie he's in, is it? No. Okay. I think that came earlier. He's in a Transformers movie, right? That's a whole yep. goddamn thing. All right. 2013. It's not easy. A. It's not uh, any of the movies where he plays gay or gay adjacent. Um, uh, oh. Okay. I mean, not explicitly gay but you can't tell me he's not making fun of somebody who dogged gay rumors for a while well this has some layers to it okay he's not making fun of somebody is it a comedy you weren't fully off base by guessing transformers so it's an action movie an action movie that also, um, hmm, how do I want to say this without completely giving it away? Uh, this movie made a lot of money. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, is it, uh, is it the Marvel movie he's in? It's not a Marvel movie. It's a DC movie. No. Well, then, goddamn it, don't say a Marvel movie that way. Because you're doing <laughs> the password rule. You're doing the password rule where you say a word a weird way and I assume it's the opposite. Uh, All right. It's not a Marvel movie. It's not a Harry. It's a franchise, though. Yes. It's not Harry Potter. No. It's not Fast It's a franchise we don't talk about anymore. We want to let it go. Oh, it's Hunger Games. It's uh, what was the Hunger Games that year? Was it the first one? No. I don't remember what year's The Hunger Games. Catching, catching Fire. Fire. It's, it's Catching Fire. One. Yeah, yeah. So okay. Catching Fire is the one that will show up on. I really like Catching Fire. Games. I think Catching Fire is the best one, maybe. Tucci's really funny in those movies. He's making fun of Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> oh, of course he's making fun of Ryan Seacrest. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget so much about those movies. That franchise really has like exited the uh, the consciousness, but yeah. Yeah, people just want to let it go. It's true. It's true. We're sick of dystopias, but like, we got real invested in the Hunger Games real quick, and we did. It was just time. This yeah, is time. It's true. Could it, it be? Could be because a... the last two fell off the deep end of quality, and they're terrible. Stanley Tucci should have a more representative uh, IMDb known for, and by that I mean it should be um, the Devil Wears Prada, Julia and Julia, Burlesque and Easy A, I, I e uh, the movies where he's either playing gay or uh, uh, gay fabulous, like uh, his character, like his his parent character in Easy A is not gay in that film, but like he definitely experimented in his uh, <laughs> like he's definitely probably bisexual, right? He's the cool dad that sucked a dick in college. Thank that you. That was a lot. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Easy A, a film. We talked about this. I don't need to mention it again. Frustrating that it's not better because Emma Stone is so good. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, that's it. That's all I got. All right, cool. 
Cool. Uh, I, I think that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. We're currently taking submissions for this month's mailbag episode. So you guys have two weeks to send us your questions. You can either tweet at us at had underscore under... Whoop. You can either tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz or email us at had Oscar buzz at gmail.com. Once again, any questions you want to ask us, whether it's previous Oscar related, current Oscar season, please don't make them be depressing COVID questions. Yeah. Joe, where can the listeners find more of you and your stuff? You can find me resolutely uh, not talking about current events, usually on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd uh, as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way. You can watch me there frantically trying to uh, catch up on the films of 2020 as I try and make make it to year-end list season, even though the Oscars won't be for another four months after that. So uh, catch me over there. Fantastic. I am Chris File. You can find me on Twitter at Chris V File, also on Letterboxd under the same name. That's F E I L. Uh, we'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. That now includes Spotify. Yay, we're on Spotify. A five star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please be the Brooke Ats- Brooks Atkinson calling our Claire Danes, even though we keep changing the opening night on you. Uh, I promise our podcast comes out all the same day. Uh, uh, that's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye. Bye.